As we continue talking about our core values as a group of believers, I want to turn to our attention to a passage of Scripture that one scholar calls the heart of the third gospel, the gospel written by Dr. Luke. The doctor who traveled with the Apostle Paul, and everywhere he went, he did his best to find eyewitnesses to Jesus' ministry and to hear their stories and compile that in his gospel so that he could send it to his friend Theophilus so that he might have an accurate account of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We're going to look at Luke chapter 15 from the perspective of the song we just sang, People Need the Lord. Verse 1 says this, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. The religious leaders in the Jewish culture of the first century A.D. had a very difficult time with the person of Jesus. They didn't like his theology, though he was the only one who was totally correct. They didn't like his lifestyle. The rabbis, taking from a passage of Scripture in the book of Exodus, where the writer takes note of the fact that God brought Israel out of Egypt. From that, the rabbis taught that holy people should not associate with unholy people. It was like COVID. If holy people associate with sinners, they'll get sin all over themselves. they become contaminated. So rabbis... Good Pharisees, they did not, they definitely did not sit down for a meal with somebody who was not one of them, one of these righteous people. Not only was he sitting with sinners, but he's sitting with tax collectors. Interesting how the Jews came up with a whole delineation of this particular group of people. I mean, we're all sinners, but there's tax collectors, and they're below sinners because in their eyes they were traitors. They had sold out to the Roman Empire, and many of them had the, uh, they were accused of being thieves. I don't know if they really were or not, but because they were working for the Roman Empire, they had all kinds of accusations. They could not, at the synagogue when they took an offering, or when they had the offering box on the the tax collectors could not drop their money in because it was polluted. They weren't really welcome at the temple. They were bad. And Jesus, he has this propensity to keep hanging out with them. This is not the only time in the scriptures we read that Jesus was with them and they got all upset. It says they were grumbling. If you look at the, at the tense of the verb, they're continually grumbling about Jesus hanging out with sinners sharing a meal with them. Verse number three. So he told them this parable. Now, I don't know if they were mumbling loud enough for Jesus to hear with his natural ear or with his blue-teared ear. <laughs> if you're, 
It's interesting how many times you read Jesus knew what they were thinking. Do I need to apply that? Jesus knew what they were thinking. He said, what man of you having a hundred sheep, if he's lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one who's lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Now, I want you to know that the last sentence he spoke with tongue-in-cheek, Are there any people who need no repentance? Jesus was not all stoic. He sometimes had a good sense of humor. And this is one of those places. But he says, I tell you, there's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And before this moment is over, he's going to share three parables. And I could preach a sermon on each of the three parables, and I think I've preached the whole series on the third parable. But today we're going to cover all three of them because we're here all day. I'm teasing. But I'm going to cover all three of them real on the surface because there's just one point that I want to make over and over. Notice this first one, the shepherd initiates finding the lost. The shepherd initiates finding the lost. There's a, a great bit of theology here for these Pharisees and scribes who had been tra- trained in the prophets. If they went back to the book of Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel takes the shepherds of Israel, the priests, to task for the fact that they have not taken care of the flock. But the promise is one day there will be a shepherd that will come and take care of the flock of Israel and there'll be restoration. And of course, that shepherd is the one who's standing right before them. And as he's telling these parables, he's talking about, this is why I'm sitting with sinners and tax collectors because I am the shepherd. I'm the shepherd who's come to gather the sheep from a practical point of view and a theological point of view. And I love the way he starts it. Which one of you guys have a hundred sheep and discover one is missing, won't leave the 99 in the pasture and go search for the lost one? And here's the thing about lost sheep. It could be lost and not know it. But the uh, the shepherd knows it's lost. So the shepherd goes and searches for it. It can be an application point for us who are sheep who've been found and born again. Now, though we are sheep, we've also been given a commission, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Matthew says, go to all the nations and make disciples. When Jesus saved you, he gave you a commission Share what's happened to you. If that wasn't your purpose, he would have taken you. 
He would have told us to hold you under the water when we baptize you until the bubbles stop and take you on to heaven. But we are here with a commission, go into all the world and tell the good news about Jesus Christ. As disciples of Jesus Christ, we should have a heart for the lost. We should have a heart for the lost. People need the Lord. People need the Lord. A survey of people in the vicinity of people who had drowned. Some, they'd watched somebody take their last breath and go under. Why didn't you rescue them? Well, didn't know they were drowning. A lot of splashing, but we didn't realize that they were in desperate straits. Application, sometimes we forget the people around us are drowning in desperate straits because they don't know Jesus. They don't know Jesus. Everyone is searching for something. Everyone worships something. Even the atheist worships something. His pseudo-intelligence, or her pseudo-intelligence. Everybody, we were created to worship God. And until you find Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior, there's a place in you that you'll keep trying to fill, and it'll never be filled. Because only He can fill it. Jesus was telling these self-righteous men, It's all about seeking the lost. I didn't come for those who didn't need a doctor, he said. I came for those who are lost. I came to seek and to save the lost. Number two, lost people are top priority to Jesus. Lost people are top priority to Jesus. The shepherd had 100 sheep. Only one of them was missing. Now, on paper, that's not much of a loss. A 1% loss. I got 99 sheep. A couple of them can get together, and that one will be replaced real quickly. <laughs> but to this shepherd, every one of those sheep was important. So he leaves the 99 there. And I don't know if this messed up the Jewish mind. He left them in the wilderness. He left them in the country, depending on which translation you're reading he left them probably in the place where the grass was growing and they just kept eating and he was to find of course it's just a parable it's just a story so don't put too many details in there several years ago someone wrote a modern day parable that illustrates what i'm trying to say this morning the story is told of a community of people that, that lived together on a, a stretch of dangerous seacoast where shipwrecks often occurred. Eventually, some of the townspeople decided, we need to build a saving station here, a rescue operation, so that when there's, there's a shipwreck, we have dinghies to go out and bring these people in and a place to minister to them and minister them back to health. So... They devoted themselves to building a little building and volunteering their time and 
And they're ready to man the boats anytime there was a shipwreck. And as a result, the town becomes famous for the number of lives that they were saved. And more and more people signed up to be a part of the team. And soon the building that they erected was not big enough, so they built a bigger one, much larger, beautifully furnished, decorated. As more and more amenities were added for the members' pleasure and comfort, the new building was slowly transformed into kind of a clubhouse. And so some of the members began to lose interest in the rescue operation. Then a shipwreck occurred. Many survivors were brought into the clubhouse for first aid. And during the period of operation, which lasted several days, the frenzied activity caused the attractive clubhouse to be considerably marred by such things as dirt, mud, and blood. At the next meeting, there was a split in the membership. Most of the members felt like that the life-saving operation was a hindrance to the social life of the organization. And those who disagreed were told, go down the beach and build your own building. And they did. As time went on, history continued to repeat itself. The story says this, and it's just a story. Today, the seacoast has a number of exclusive clubhouses dotting the shore, but no one in the area seems to be concerned about the rescue operation. End of the story. It's easy for us humans to get distracted by comfort and lose sense of proper priorities. It can be, we can become very complacent in that. I've got my ticket punched. I know Jesus. Jesus loves me. I'm on my way to heaven. And forget, go, tell. Go make disciples. Lost people are priority. And everybody said? In another encounter with these religious folks, I already said it. He said, I came to seek and to save that was lost. People need the Lord. This is an ongoing rescue operation here. A spiritual hospital needs to be our mindset, not a spiritual club. I see some heads shaking. It's a good, it's a good point to say something loud. Amen? Because we're so thankful we're saved. Amen? I mean, I chose the songs on purpose this morning, declaring my salvation and what God has done for me. And I don't know about you, but times I sing those songs, I, I don't live in the past, but I can reflect on where some of the things that I've gone through and where God has brought me to. So thankful for his salvation. There's a celebration when the lost sheep is found. Jesus said it was rejoicing that the shepherd puts the sheep on his shoulder to take him home. Years ago, I was at a, a young couple's 
function down at the beach, and one of the one of the wives somehow her wedding ring slipped off, dropped into the sand close to the surf. Now somebody was a bit uptight. And there was an intense search that went on. And would you believe that God was good? And I don't remember who found it, but somebody digging through the sand with their fingers came up with that ring. Do you think there was a little bit of rejoicing? <laughs> what was lost was found. Remember the days when your children were small and you'd go to a department store and one of them would disappear and your heart, because there's some bad people out there. And you frantically begin looking in all those racks where the clothes are hanging because that's where they always climb to. And when you find them, there's a great sigh of relief and also you want to give them, but you are so glad. You are so glad. He said the shepherd went and he found the sheep. And there's great rejoicing. Where did he say the rejoicing was? He, he come and joined. And he said, there's rejoicing in heaven. How much more is when one sinner comes to repent? I read a, a quote from a New Testament Jewish scholar. He said, the parables in the 15th chapter would have been revolutionary to these rabbis and Pharisees. While they agreed that God would welcome a repentant sinner, the idea that God seeks sinners was a whole new insight. Not only did Jesus come seeking this, Jesus said, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner repents than over 99 righteous people. When a man, woman, boy, or girl repents of their sin and embraces Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, heaven rejoices, the Father rejoices, the Son rejoices, the Holy Spirit rejoices, the angels rejoice. While the Pharisees are trying to wrap their mind around this thought, he kept going. Another story. Or what woman, having ten coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I found the coin that I lost. Just so I tell you, there is no, there's joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Ten coins. She loses one. We don't know exactly what these coins are about. Some people believe they might have been a headband, and she lost one of them, or a bracelet, and she lost one of them. We don't know that. Most of the floors in that day were dirt covered with straw. So if you lose something under the straw, what do you got to do? You got to sweep the straw, and then in the dirt, you got to find it. She seeks until she finds it. It was a very important to her. Point, three points from this. Jesus cares about quantity. You know, he cares about our quality of life, that we live a holy life, that we be transformed into his image more on an ongoing basis. 
but he's not willing that any should perish. That any should perish. He wants as many as possible to embrace faith in him, to be called children of God. Ninety-nine safe, one is gone. Nine coins out of ten accounted for. Search till you find it. No matter how many have come to know him, if there's one missing, we're still searching. Each life, every life matters to Jesus Christ. I remember some of you were around years ago when we did the 40 Days of Purpose from Rick Warren's book. And Rick Warren tells about his dad in his last days living in an assisted living thing. And his goal every day was save one more for Jesus. Save one more for Jesus. Reach one more for Jesus. Now some preacher in creative message and I don't even know which preacher it was. I just read it. He let his imagination go just a little bit and said There's, there could be two questions when you get to heaven. I think the, if we go into Matthew 25, we can, might you know, be able to make it fit biblically. But they're good questions. He said, the first question that you'll be asked when you get there is, did you come alone? Did you come alone? He said, wouldn't it be awful to stand and look at God and His Son and Jesus Christ who died for the sins of the whole world when He asked you, did you come alone? And you kind of shuffle your feet and hang your head and said, yeah. Are we just happy with getting there ourselves? Is that our goal, to come alone? Pretty heavy question, huh? If we answer yes, then the next question is why? Why would you come alone? When we read Luke chapter 15, we understand that Jesus had a heart for lost people, absolutely intent on reaching them. Number two, Jesus persistently searches. If she loses one coin, she does not light a lamp. Does she not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently, diligently, diligently until she finds it. Remember, he's explaining his reason to these religious folks for being with the ungodly people, the tax collectors. This woman represents his heart she searches diligently until she finds it. Last Sunday morning we sang in one of the services, I don't remember we sang in both services, Jesus loves me, I think we sang it in this service. And the pre-chorus says, I couldn't run, I couldn't run from his presence. I couldn't run, couldn't run from his arms. When Chris Tomlin and Reuben Morgan and Ben Glover wrote that song. They encapsulated the persistence of Jesus and the Holy Spirit to pursue us, to draw us in, to bring us into the family of God. Why? Because Jesus loves people. 
He has a heart for the lost. And every person needs the Lord. I don't know if it fits right here, but I'm going to throw it in anyway. Someone counted that there's at least 40 healings that Jesus did in the four Gospels. Of the 40 cases, they concluded that 34 of them, the person that needed healing did not come to Jesus on their own or find Jesus on their own. 34 of the 40, either Jesus found them or someone else brought them to Jesus. Hurting people need someone to bring them and introduce them to Jesus. Comfort those with what you've been comforted with, is what Paul said. If you've received Jesus Christ, comfort others with what you've received. A number of years ago, I read a survey of why people come into relationship with Jesus Christ. This is why people come into relationship according to this survey. 1% evangelistic crusades. What's an evangelist? You remember Billy Graham. Thousands of people would come. Only a very small percentage of those people ever became disciples of Jesus Christ. And I'm not diminishing his ministry at all. A great and fantastic God-called ministry. 4% people are born again because of church programs. Another 4% are born again because of Sunday school. 5% are people who just see the sign, come as you are, and they walk in. 8% because they like the pastor, and they like his preaching or whatever. And he preaches the message. And the 76% of people who come to know Jesus Christ, it's a result of their friends and their family. In that particular survey, 76% of the people, as a result, somebody said, you know what? Either come to church with me or they talk to them about their soul and, and talk to them about Jesus Christ. So when that 76% of the people going to heaven was a result of a friend sharing Jesus Christ and inviting them to believe. The third point from the second parable, parable is this. There's a great celebration. A great celebration. When she found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there's joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, I don't know how you read that sentence, but the more I read it, there's joy before the angels of God. Who Who's before the angels of God? It's the Father and the Son and the Spirit because the angels are ever around the throne singing to him, holy, holy, holy. God rejoices when somebody says, I accept the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made for me. Next parable, the lost son. Verse 11, and he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, 
The young son gathered all he had, and he took a journey to a far country. There he squandered his property in reckless living. When he spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him in to feed, or sent him in his field to feed the pigs. Let me pause just a moment. Now, Jesus, everything he said so far would have just blown these Pharisees away. To think that a son would speak that way to his father, that could be capital punishment according to the Old Testament law. But the, the father gives him that. And then for a Jewish boy to end up feeding pigs, the unclean critter, Verse 16, and he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father. I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he rose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. The father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Three lessons from this one that I want to talk about, just three. God's love is patient. God's love is patient. We call this the story of the prodigal son because he wasted he squandered his property. You know that, that word, uh, prodigal means wasteful, ex wastefully extravagant or lavish. And of course he wasted everything he had. But how much love did this father lavish upon this son? Number two, while he's patient, He's waiting. He's waiting. The young man in the story Jesus told, he rebelled and ran to a far country to experience the freedom that he longed for at his dad's expense. Now this father could have sent a posse to bring him home, tell him to straighten up. But he waited for the young man to come to the end of the consequences of his choices. He waited for the young man, one passage of scripture, or one translation said, to come to his senses, to repent and come home. As Jesus tells you this story, you get the picture of the father spending time every day looking down the road because it said when he was afar off, a long ways away, the father saw him. And then he did something that no Jewish father would have done. He ran down the road to meet him. 
Jesus was telling the story of the Father in heaven and his heart for the lost, even those who've walked away in rebellion. And so this story ends with a third point, which is the third point to all three of them. There was a great celebration. Bring the fattened calf and let's barbecue. Let's eat and celebrate. In these stories, there's three kinds of people represented by the different, the coin, the sheep, and the boy. The coin represents people who are lost and don't know it. There are literally thousands of people in this county and the one across the river and the one just next to us in any direction you want to go who are lost and don't know it. If you went to them and said, you're lost, they'd say, you're crazy. They have no concept of the spiritual reality of the spirit living in them, one day standing before living God. Lost and don't know it. They have no concept of a God who loves them of eternal destiny. The sheep. These could be people who are lost and know it, but they don't know what to do about it. They don't know what to do about it. Sheep are not the smartest animal in the barn. They do not have a record of high intelligence. That's why we are called sheep, by the way. That's why we need a shepherd. I mean, if you keep following, if Jesus told the story a little farther, there would come a point in time when that sheep would look, finally lift his head from grazing and look around and there would be no shepherd. There'd be no sheep. That's why the shepherd went after it. Number three, the lost son. That's people who are lost and they know it and they know what to do about it. They're lost and they know it and they know what to do about it. When he came to himself, came to his senses, he realized back home, back home in my father's house, the servants have plenty of food to eat and shelter over their head. I will, I will go home and I will say, Father, make me a servant. I have sinned. He was lost and he knew it. And he knew what to do, go home. As I'm saying those words, I can hear the old hymn that we used to sing, come home, come home, come home. Another one, I'm coming home, coming home. It's interesting, this third person, this rebellious son, the father did not go after him. He stood and waited. He stood and waited. Until the young man hit bottom. When people quit enabling him, when nobody gave him 
anything. He came to himself. Just think about that in the culture in which we live and some of the people who were raised in church and where they're at today and everything we try to do to just something to think about. I don't know if you've noticed, but every time repentance was a part of the story. Repentance was a key. There's rejoicing in heaven when one sinner repents. Said that twice. The son, you actually hear his repentance. I have sinned. I did the wrong thing. Repentance. Repentance is more than saying I'm sorry. Repentance is a change of the way I think which will change the way I act. Repentance is a commitment to not, by God's grace, go back to where I came from, but to keep going forward. By grace, I'm going to obey his word, not to get saved, but because I am saved. But I can't get saved without repentance, in my opinion. Remember when Peter preached in Acts chapter 2, what must we do to receive? Repent and be baptized. John the Baptist came preaching the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. Jesus, his preaching was repent. Repent. People need the Lord. People need the Lord. If we're going to be like Jesus and reach people for the kingdom of God, what do we need to do? Let me make some suggestions. Becoming a redemptive person requires a decision. It requires a decision. It requires a decision to pray for people. It requires a decision that when God gives me an opportunity or my friend gives me an opportunity, I'm going to speak about Jesus. I'm going to speak about spiritual things and eternal things. A decision. I'm going to look for opportunities to speak. Becoming a redemptive person requires some preparation. That's some preparation. Now, there's all kinds of evangelism methodologies. Get all those words out, all those syllables that have been created for soul healing. You can, you can get a tract or a little booklet from campus um, ministry. It used to be Campus Crusade. And I put another insert in the bulletin today, a white piece of paper, and on, it says on the top of it, on one side of it, the four spiritual laws. Four spiritual laws. Uh, people have used this for a couple hundred years or more uh, to share their faith. Law number one, God loves you and offers a wonderful plan for your life. And they quote John, or they show, the best thing is to have a Bible and open it up and say, and here's what it says in John 3:16: God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes on him should not perish but have everlasting life. John 10:10 10, 10 said, Jesus, you know, that's God's love for us. God loves us. And the plan is, John 10:10, 10, 10, God came to give you life abundantly. Life to the full. But law number two is man is sinful and separated from God. Therefore, he cannot know and he cannot experience God's love and plans for his life. I don't have this on the screen because I didn't have enough time to put it all. But it's on that white piece of paper inside the bulletin. 
Hopefully you've got that. And I printed it all out so you don't have to put any blanks in it so you can take it home and use it as a tool. All right? Man is sinful, separated from God. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Man is separated because of his sin. The wages of sin is death, is what Romans 6.23, the first part of the Part A, that part A, that means that's the first part of the sentence. Law number three, Jesus Christ is God's only provision for man's sin. Through him, you can know and experience God's love and plan for your life. And here's where it gets dicey for a lot of people when we say his only provision. But that's what the Bible tells us. He died in our place. While we were yet sinners, Romans 5 8 says, Christ died for us. He rose from the dead. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is all about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Paul talks about the fact that Jesus, this is of importance that Jesus died. He rose again and he was seen by some 500 people. It's not just some myth. 500 people didn't have the same hallucination at the same time. He's the only way to God. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Law number four, we must individually receive Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Then we can know and experience God's love and plan for our life. We must individually receive. Oh, I wish that me being saved would guarantee that all my kids grandkids get to heaven but every one of them has to make their own decision I have to do everything I can to help them make that decision but I can't force it it's their decision God gave them a free will everybody individually has to receive him and then when we do we'll know and experience life we must receive him John 1 12 to as many as received him he gave the power to become the sons of God we receive Christ through faith we are saved by Grace through faith in Christ Jesus, it's the gift of God, lest any man should boast. When we receive Christ, we experience a new birth. And in John 3, 1 through 8, you take somebody through that, where Nicodemus comes and Jesus said, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said, whoa, how do I go back in my mother? You don't go to your mother. What's born of the water is, is flesh, and what's born of the spirit is spirit. You need to have your spirit born again by the power of the Holy Spirit, by receiving Jesus Christ. We receive Christ through personal invitation, and he used Revelation 3.20, where Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice, let him open the door, and I will come in and sup with him. That's the four spiritual laws. And if you get the pamphlet, there's some little pictures that go along with it and a couple of other things that you can, that you can use to share. Then there's the Romans Road. Romans Road. I think this is the one that my dad used quite often. Romans 3.10. Is anyone perfect? Romans 3.10. Is it written, none is righteous? No, not one. Is there any exception to that? Romans 3.23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Where did sin come from? Verse 12 of chapter 5 in Romans. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Adam... The first person created by God sinned, and he passed that sinful nature on to every human being. That's what Paul said in Romans. What do we deserve for our sins? Romans 6.23, we read that earlier. The wages of sin is death. 
But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because of our sins, we're supposed to die. Well, who paid for it? Romans 5, 8, that God shows his love for us and that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. Instead of us dying, Jesus died in our place in order to give us life. So what is the way out? Romans 10, 9, and 10, and you hear me quote this one probably two or three times a month. If we confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. With mouth one confesses and saved. Verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So how can I get out? Salvation is as easy as ABC. A, admit that you're a sinner. We all are. B, believe in your heart that Jesus died and rose from the dead. C, confess with your mouth that God raised Jesus from the dead and that you accept Jesus Christ as the Lord of your life. And pray a simple prayer like this prayer. It doesn't have to be this prayer, but something like this. Father, I know that I've broken your laws. My sins have separated me from you. I'm truly sorry. Now I want to turn away from my past sinful life, turn towards you. Please forgive me. Help me avoid sinning again. I believe that your son Jesus Christ died for my sins, was resurrected from the dead, is alive, and here's my prayer. I invite you, Jesus, to become the Lord of my life, to rule and reign in my heart from this day forward. Please send your Holy Spirit to help me obey you, do your will for the rest of my life. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. There's just two. There's a whole bunch more. There's one where you use your knuckles and... There's another one, the evangelism explosion, where you approach somebody and said, if you were to die tonight and stand before God, and God says, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? Great question, huh? If somebody says, because I'm a good person, nah, that won't get you in. The only right answer is because I put my faith in Jesus Christ and I believe that he rose from the grave and washed away my sins by the power of his blood and I put all my confidence in. I give you those things, but you know what I think the best evangelism method is? John chapter four, I find the best, I think is the best method for anybody. You don't have to memorize anything. John chapter 4, Jesus goes to Samaria, to the well of Sychar. He confronts a woman. She says, you, he reveals himself. And she, what does she do? She went and she told the people everything that he said to her. She just went and shared, this is what happened to me. You can share what happened to you and nobody can argue with it because it happened to you. I can open up and tell them, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And somebody be like that woman who wanted, well, my forefathers say we should move from this mountain. Your forefathers on this mountain. Just share what Jesus did for you. You'd be surprised. I've heard of people sharing their, and someone said, you want to ask Jesus in your heart? And they said, yes. Do you really? Let me explain it again. I mean, you don't do that. You get to that point. Number three, becoming a redemptive person, we're back to the notes again, requires a continual focus. A continual focus. 
Jesus left us here after we got saved to be salt and light, to share the good news. Life gets busy doing all kinds of good things. Taking care of family, taking care of business, taking care of all kinds of things. Sometimes we can forget to be difference makers. Salt and light, they make a difference. Salt, in that day, it was preservative. You know what will preserve our culture? Is if more and more people give their heart to Jesus Christ and start living by biblical principles because they love Jesus, not because they want to be religious, but because they love Jesus. So, using the acrostic for salt, S, show love. Show love, be a person of love. Not only to brothers and sisters in Christ, but to people who don't know the Lord. I don't know if you, this sermon's getting too big, but um, remember when the young ruler came to Jesus and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Keep the commandments? I've done that. One thing you lack, go and sell all you have and give it to the poor. And he went away sorrowful because he had great riches. And remember, is he walking away? Jesus is grieved because Jesus loved that man. Look up the story. Jesus, he doesn't just love the people who love him. In fact, he loved us while we were yet sinners. He loved us before we give a care at all about who God was. And so, if we reflect in Jesus, we need to love people who are not part of the family. People who need Jesus. So love. Ask questions. Ask questions. The only way we can find out a person's spiritual journey is to ask questions. Ask the Lord to give you good ones. L, this is important. Listen. People, people have major hurts in their lives and they are looking Longing, waiting for someone who will listen. Who will listen. And while you're listening, don't be thinking of any answers. Because if you start thinking of answers, you quit listening. In all your relationships, that's a good tip. Listen. Listen. And when you get the opportunity, turn the subject to Jesus. Turn the subject to Jesus. Because he's the only one who can wonderfully and truly change people's lives. Jesus. People need the Lord. People need the Lord. It's not on your notes, but you got a bunch of blank space today, so let's use that blank space. Put one, two, three, four, five. One, two, three, four, five. And I want you to list the first five people that come to your mind that you think may need to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. 
Now I'm told by people who are smarter than me that usually it takes 10 intentional touches, when they say a touch, interactions with somebody before you really get the opportunity to really share Jesus to the point that they're going to hear. So those five names, commit yourself to pray for those five names every day and to make over the next month or so, maybe between now and Easter, to reach out to them and make contact with them in some way at least two or three times. Start creating a relationship. Because remember how many people got saved? 76% in the context of friends and family. We can do the work of the ministry together. Amen? People need the Lord. I want to close by singing a song we've sang for years. Lord, I give you my heart. And if you're here this morning or you're listening to me via the internet this morning and you heard those verses about what it means to be born again, as we sing this song, I encourage you to say, Jesus, I give you my heart. For those of us who've given our heart to Jesus Christ in the terms of salvation, what I want us to do today is recommit ourselves to giving our heart to Jesus in behalf of the lost, in behalf of people who don't know Jesus Christ. Lord, I give you my heart, and in giving my heart, give me your eyes to see people like you see people. Give me a heart of compassion that breaks for people who are so desperately in need of life and hope. So we're going to make it a prayer. So I invite you to stand with me and or kneel with me, however you want to take your posture. But let's make it a real prayer this morning. is my desire to honor you and hold with all my heart I worship you all I have within me I give Verse one more time. 
This is my desire to honor you, Lord, with all my heart, I worship you. Lord, have your way. 